Amen. You can be seated. Please turn with me back to Mark chapter 14. This morning's text will be 66 through 72. As we have been through the, what I said last week was the longest night in history, the night that Jesus had the last supper with his apostles and prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and was betrayed by one of his own with a kiss and was arrested and was hauled off to Annas, the high priest. And now we find uh, at the end of that trial, as Jesus is being transported during that trial and as the point where he is being transported to the next phase of the trial, we have another tragedy that involves one of his own. It's part of the testimony of Peter. And I want you to know that I think that the the biography of Peter that we have in the Scriptures is one of the most exhilarating biographies there is. It's tragic, but it's fascinating. It, it weaves between just uh, beginning with an incredible time of calling when he is brought into Jesus' inner circle. It involves this tragic scene that we're going to look at this morning, and then it turns again to this incredible story of rest- restoration and redemption. It's a fascinating biography. I think uh, in all the Bible, the most fascinating biography is that of Jesus Christ. It's what we've been working through in the Gospel of Mark. Second might be the biography of Peter. I, I like Paul's biography a lot as well. But you look at Peter and Paul and maybe the Apostle John, those are incredible biographical sketches that we get from the Scriptures. The story of the life of Peter is one of tragedy and one of glory. And I think that we can walk through Peter's life. This is somewhat of a biographical sermon this morning. We can walk through Peter's life and see that it had four phases, and that will be the structure of the sermon this morning, four phases. First, we're going to see that Peter was chosen by Christ to be one of his. Next, we're going to see that Peter was warned by Christ after being chosen, warned of temptation to sin. Third, we're going to see that Peter had this moment of being fallen, being sinful. And then last, we will end this morning with seeing that Peter was restored. We cannot stop at the fallen point in Peter's life, and we do need to see the restoration that is given to him. So here we are, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 66. And my first point this morning, real quickly, is I want you to see that Peter was specifically chosen by Christ to be one of his men. In fact, I would build this off of the passage in John chapter 15, verse 16, when Jesus says to all 12 of his apostles, actually, I believe it's 11 at that point, Judas has escaped the room to go out and betray. But Jesus says this to the 11, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. It is emphatic here. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. That applies to the Apostle Peter. So Jesus, we look into the biography of Peter early on in the Gospels. We see that Jesus called out to Peter and Andrew while they were fishing. And he says to them, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We get in John's account where Andrew is called first by Jesus. And Andrew runs to Peter, his brother, and says, we have found the Messiah. And Peter comes running as well to Jesus. And in that moment, in the greatest demonstration of sovereignty, in the greatest demonstration of choosing, Jesus says, you're going to follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. But he also says, 
You are Simon, but from now on you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So he renames him. He calls him and chooses him, and then he names him. These are sovereign acts that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, did with Peter. And then thirdly, we see that Peter got his understanding of who Jesus Christ was, not from his own flesh, but from God above. In Matthew 16, starting in verse 15, Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? He said this to all of his disciples. And Peter's the one that steps out and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven did. So God chose Peter, God named Peter, and God revealed to Peter the truth about Peter's Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian... That is your story as well. You did not become a Christian on your own. You didn't just get smart enough one day to say, I think I'll follow Jesus. He's not even on your radar screen if you're left to yourself. But long ago, he took on flesh and dwelt on this earth and lived a life much like yours and mine. He faced every temptation that we have, yet he was without sin. God has revealed him to you in the scriptures. And God accompanies the scriptural revelation of Jesus Christ with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's through that combination of actions by God that you, as a Christian today, have been chosen by him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that choosing might be happening right this moment. I would encourage you to lean in and listen to this message this morning because you are Peter. You had to be called out by Christ. You need to be warned by Christ. You might even fall after knowing Christ and you need to be restored by Christ. So my first point this morning is Peter, like us, was chosen by God to be a follower of Christ. Second point. Upon being a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus had to issue a stern warning to Peter. For you see, Peter, clearly chosen by Christ, was still fallen. And it is true, when we become Christians, we don't stop sinning, do we? We still wrestle with this fallen flesh. I I believe that Christians are... Yes, we still sin, but Christians don't boast in their sin. They repent of their sins. And so as Christians, let's just be very honest this morning. We need to be very, very diligent and very good at repenting. Confessing our sins, stopping those sins and going in the other direction, away from sinful ways, towards Christ and His ways. So listen, if you're not a believer here this morning, I want you to know you're in a room full of people that sin. But hopefully the difference that marks all of us is that we repent of that sin. We don't celebrate that sin. And we don't continue to live in that sin unapologetic. We cut it off and kill it in the name of Christ. So Peter is chosen by Christ, but he's still fallen. And I want you to look over in 14, starting in verse 27. We read this just a moment ago. Jesus said to all of his apostles... On this Thursday night of the Passion Week, 
you will all fall away. We've preached through this passage already. He goes on to say, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is the shepherd and the sheep are his disciples. And he is struck and they scatter that night. And then he says in verse 28, these great words of hope. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So there's a resurrection coming on the other side of this shepherd being struck down. There's such hope there. The hope will be found in Galilee. And then look at 29. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Not me, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples joined him and said, yeah, what he said. There's a warning here. This is an opportunity. Peter has been warned by Christ. This is an opportunity for him to fight against the flesh and not sin egregiously by denying his Christ. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Keep your place in Mark. We're going to be in Luke 22 also because this is, a, this is an extreme version. Luke's version is more extreme and more cutting as we read what really happened, what, what happened furthermore in this conversation. Luke 22, verse 31. Again, keep your finger in both places because we're going to be back and forth this morning. This is Jesus still in the upper room. Luke's perspective. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That's a horrifying sentence, isn't it? That is a sobering verse of Scripture. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Beware, Peter. Beware of this one who has made this demand. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. <laughs> and Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So we see here from these two accounts, Mark's and Luke's accounts, that Peter lacks a humble understanding that he is still capable of tremendous and horrifying sin. Peter's flesh is totally depraved. It is. He, if he's left to his own, he will fall. He will sin. He will deny Christ, which is the ultimate sin. And he is not humble. He says, even when all these guys do, I won't. So he acknowledges the others might be capable of doing that. But he says, not me, and pride came before the fall. Folks, let's be humble and let's understand that we still contend with fallen flesh and we are capable of tremendous sin. Now, there's some things that Jesus instructs us here this morning to do about that fallenness. We don't just sit here and say, man, I hope I don't fall. There are some things that we are to do, and we'll get there in just a moment. But for this moment, 
Peter lacks humility in understanding his fallenness. He puts himself above his other disciples. And he is emphatic. I will not deny you. Even if I have to go to prison, even if I have to join you in death, I will not deny you. So I want to say this morning to all of us, we are just like Peter. And we must not imitate him here in this pride of thinking that we are not capable of sinning. We need to be warned. We need to be warned. Even those of us that have been chosen, and we are aware of our chosenness at this moment. Third point, and we'll spend more time here. After being chosen and after being warned, Peter falls. And now we pick up in verse 66 of Mark 14. It says that Peter was below in the courtyard. Remember, Jesus is in the residence of Annas, the chief high priest, father of Caiaphas, the high priest. He's having a trial. It's a kangaroo court. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at the, the travesty of this trial. We see that Mark is below in the courtyard of the high priest's quarters. How did he get there? How did he get there? Well, he got there out of true love for Jesus Christ. He loved Christ enough that he would follow at a distance. He got there because he's concerned for his Savior, Jesus. He got there because he's curious, how is this going to go? Remember, all the apostles abandoned him when he was arrested, but Peter circles back. Love that. Because he loved Jesus. He did. This is evidence. He believed in Jesus. He was really concerned. I want to see how this goes with him. John tells us, the Apostle John tells us, that Peter needed assistance getting into this courtyard. In John chapter uh, 18, the Apostle writes this, starting in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, another mystery disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, that's not talking about Peter, that's this other disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Peter had a ticket. To get into the courtyard. The ticket was another disciple. And if you study through the rest of the book of John. You will discover that this other disciple. Is the one that Jesus loved. John himself. And it says John went with Jesus. Into the courtyard of the high priest. And John went to the servant girl. Who was keeping the gate. And said he's with me. Let him in. So this other disciple and Peter are the only two of the eleven that did abandon for a moment Jesus, but these two do circle back. And they accompany Jesus. One tightly, John into the courtyard. One loosely, Peter in a distance. And so now we walk up to this scene being set and we see these three denials that Jesus warned Peter of. And here's the first one. Verse 66. 
one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. First denial, there we have it. Rooster's going to crow twice. We have one denial, and we have one crowing of the rooster. Probably three o'clock in the morning. So Peter plays the role of ignorance in this denial. I neither know nor understand what you mean. I am absolutely ignorant. You're going to have to give me more than that. When all she said was, you're with the Nazarene, right? You're with the Jesus guy. I don't know what you mean. It's astonishing. Why follow Jesus to then say, I don't know what you mean? So we've got conflict going on in the flesh of this man called Peter. He went out into the gateway. The rooster crows. And at this point, Peter is unfazed by the crowing of the rooster. We have nothing in Scripture that says he went, "Uh uh-oh, I better stop. That's one. There's none of that. He's unfazed. We go to the second denial in verse 69. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders now, this man is one of them. Mark says, but he denied it again. She is persistent. She brings others into her charge. And Peter digs in deeper. I don't know what you're talking about. I do not acknowledge what you are saying. I can't hear you. La, 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 la. Luke tells us Peter's denial was stronger than that. Luke's version says he denied it with an oath. And he said, I do not know this man. It's a little bit stronger. So then we come to this third denial. Look at this one. Still in uh, verse 70. And after a little while, the bystanders that this young girl brought into the scene, the bystanders again say to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. They're saying, you're not from around here. Maybe they recognized an accent that was Galilean. Maybe he was dressed as a Galilean. But he began in verse 71 to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And Mark narrates for us that immediately the rooster crowed a second time. So he pleads ignorance on the first denial. He still denies in the second one according to Mark. Luke says he denied it with an oath. And now Mark comes to the third one and he says there's oath-taking and swearing happening. And he is radically extreme in his denial of his Christ. The bystanders that join in on identifying Peter with Jesus, they suspect that he's a Galilean. Uh, John 18 tells us this. One of the bystanders is a key witness to all of this. Listen to this. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden? So remember last week, Malchus's ear is severed from his head by Peter's sword. 
Well, one of Malchus's relatives was at that scene and said, I think I remember you. You kind of stood out. And Peter still invokes oaths and swears. Says, no way, not me. You got a mistaken identity. Peter denies again severely. He invoked a curse on himself. He might have said something like this. May I be damned if I know him. That's what a curse sounds like. Bring damnation upon me if I'm not telling you the truth. I do not know that man. Can you imagine uttering such about the Lord? He swore, it says. I do not know this man of whom you speak. I swear by God above is probably what he said. Because Jewish men swore by God. Even though they're instructed not to. You don't swear by anything less than God. In your fallenness. James 5.12, we need to take heed. But above all, my brothers, do not swear. Either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be what? And let your no be what? That's right, you know this passage. Peter didn't let his yes be yes and his no be no. And he invokes oaths and he swears. And he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Peter's got nothing but condemnation raining down on him at this moment, and it is tragic. Uh, Let me be honest with you. In the study this week, as I prepared for this, I have been right there. (laughs) And I understand condemnation raining down and I thank God for it by the way because it is how he recaptures me and it is the condemnation that comes from the Holy Spirit it's called conviction and conviction is the very beginning step in the process of repenting so Peter condemnation is starting to rain down on him and the source of that condemnation is God himself hold that thought So at this point, we've got a stunning turn of events. Just think through the events of this night. You could go all the way back through the life of Peter. But let's just look at the events of this night. From, first of all, Peter saying, If I must die with you, if I must go to prison with you, I will not deny you. These guys might, but not me. He goes from that to then drawing his sword in front of hundreds of soldiers, and striking an ear, he should have been killed on the spot. That's pretty bold, isn't it? He's not denying Christ in that moment, slicing Malchus's ear off. He's boldly saying, I will die with him. But then we go to denying that he knows Jesus to a little bitty servant girl. The term in the language is girl. It's not a woman. It's a young girl. And he's scared of her. (laughs) Not scared of an army. He's scared of a girl. And then he invokes curses upon himself, making oaths against the accusation leveled 
toward him from a little girl and some bystanders. And all the while, I am absolutely confused because the Apostle John walks into this same courtyard with Jesus, the Scriptures say, and the Apostle John goes to the servant girl and says, hey, 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 he's with me, let him in. So I've got John over here, not terrified, not denying, not even feeling in threat, and we've got Peter scared to death. Sin is irrational, isn't it? Because this does not make sense. But let's just acknowledge when we are tempted and when we are being sifted like wheat in that passage I read out of Luke, we'll come back to that, we are very irrational people. So we don't ever want to get to that point where we're being sifted without some work done in advance. Again, I'll come to that in just a moment. So why is it that Peter denies Christ here? Why? Can we find from the text evidence that would lead us to at least understand, okay, I get how he did this, even though I don't. Well, I've got two points that I think would be evidence and that would be teaching points for us that we can learn from Peter's fall here. The first is Peter had a strong fear of man. He was scared of man. A little girl in this case. And some bystanders. The fear of man. I want you to recall uh, Jesus says in Mark eight thirty three. I read that right during the offering. Peter, when he says, get behind me, Satan. Remember that passage? He then says, Peter, you are not setting your things on, on your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That version of Peter has popped back up. His mind is not fixed on the things of God, of Christ. His concern is that of man. Isaiah 2.22 Stop regarding man in whose nostril is his breath, for of what account is he? God says, do not fear man. He just has breath in his nostrils, implying that one day that breath will leave those nostrils. That man will die. Of what account is he? He has no eternal weight over your condition. Instead, I think we should regard the one who put the breath in the nostrils of that man. And his name is God. And we first got introduced to him doing that in Genesis chapter 1. Psalm 146.3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Peter acts as if his salvation is in these people, this little girl, these bystanders. He has no salvation in them. He has salvation only in the one <clears throat> that he's denying. Oh boy. Hebrews 13.6. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Peter's not swimming in these verses. These concepts from his God are not coursing through his veins in the moment. We should be saying, what can God do to me? If Peter would have said, what can God do to me? I will not deny my Christ. He just set his mind on the things of God. But he was man-centered. 
So this morning, I just want to make a quick point here <clears throat> for all of us. We must be honest with ourselves and understand that this is why we are tempted to deny Christ. And we are. I can give you moments in my life where I have done what Peter did and I've laid low in my Christianity in a moment where Christ would have me to stand tall. You know, we might not be blatant in our denial of Christ like Peter was, but how do we deny him? Well, we might just tone down our Christianity. I'm not going to live out there boldly humbly, but I'm not going to live out there boldly proclaiming my faith in Jesus Christ. We, we don't want to be viewed sometimes as taking our religion too seriously. And we are all susceptible to that, including this one speaking to you this morning. You want to know how the devil tries to sift me like wheat? You put me in a position in this church where I've take, got to take a strong stand for Jesus Christ on something, and I want y'all to love me to death. And I'm fearful that if I take a strong stand, you may say, man, you're taking Jesus way too seriously. Pastors experience that. I'm not alone in that. I talk to my brothers in the pulpit all over this state that I'm friends with. So sometimes we deny Christ real subtly by just not taking him too serious and not being too out there with him. We never need to be arrogant and cocky with Jesus, but we never need to be ashamed and watered down. It's through our boldness that people are brought to know him. So the day right now does not exist where we're openly denying Christ for fear of what man's going to do to us, but we may water him down a little bit. But guess what? Right now, our culture's marching down a path that we could, in our lifetime, be threatened seriously in our testimony of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, we are in a day and age that we could be more in the position of Peter straight up than we ever have been in the United States of America. Are you ready to stand boldly and say, I know him? through and through I am a follower of his and I would invite you to join me that is what Christians must say Peter had an opportunity in this courtyard to evangelize those around that fire and say that man up there being tried it's unjust he is God with us let me tell you all the things he did let me tell you all the things he taught and some might have come to know Christ that night but instead Peter says I don't know what you mean I don't know who that is and your accusation cannot stick so let's be cautious to not deny Christ in the little ways of watering him down and let's be cautious and be prepared for the day that we might have to stand boldly and say you bet I know him and he's the only one worth knowing and I urge you to know him with me so the first thing is, Peter was scared of man. That's how he could fall like this. Here's the second one. The second one is that he failed to pray in advance of this moment. I want you to look at Mark 14, verse 37. 
Mark 14, 37. This is hours earlier on the same night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John away from the rest of the disciples, tells them to wait here while I go over there and pray. He goes over and prays. He comes back. Peter, James, and John are asleep. He wakes them up. Guys, stay awake. Pray. He goes away again, prays, comes back. They're sleeping again. And he does it one more time. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, look, at, he says to Peter, not James or John. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, it is weak. Now, we didn't talk about that verse a couple of weeks ago when I preached that passage because we're going to talk about it today. It is, seemed odd back then when you don't know all of the future yet. It seems odd back then. What is Jesus telling Peter to pray about so that he doesn't fall into temptation? Is it the temptation to sleep? Or is it some other temptation? Well, I think it is the temptation that Jesus said, Peter, you need to know something. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. That is temptation. And so you need to stay awake in this garden with me and you need to pray so that when temptation comes, though your spirit is willing, your flesh will not be weak. That's what's going on here. And so Peter is scared to death of mankind. And he's not going to have any help with that condition because he has not prayed in the garden before the mankind confrontation. And so he's weak. He's not prayed up. Peter's only defense against being sifted like wheat was to pray on this occasion. This is his only defense. And what should he pray? I think he should pray like Jesus taught. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Jesus taught us to pray that in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Peter's not praying that. Lead me not into temptation, Jesus. Deliver me from the evil one, the one who is demanding to sift me like wheat. He hadn't prayed. Prayer is not something to cast aside. And so his only defense against being sifted like wheat was to pray for deliverance from the sifting. And yet Peter sleeps 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 how are you praying are you praying or are you sleeping I promise you you don't want a sleeping pastor you need me praying and I don't pray enough you need to pray that I pray more (laughs) you do We do not need to slumber in the peace times in the garden, if you will. And it wasn't peaceful for Jesus. But we do not need to slumber. We need to be praying before the sifting. Because in the moment of sifting, it's too late. We do, in our fallen flesh, have to build up strength. The steel that is to be in our spine has to be tempered and it gets tempered through, yes, trials and tribulations and yes, through feeding on the word of God and absolutely praying so that in that moment we are rigid, steadfast, and we will not deny our Christ.
Satan wants to sift you like wheat. I'm not quoting Jesus to Peter. I'm quoting Jesus to you. Satan does want to sift every one of you along with me like wheat. He'd love to sift your pastor like wheat because he can sift, if he can sift me like wheat and tear me down, he's going to get to all of y'all because you will be impacted by my fall. He'd love to strike and sift a husband. Because if he can cut that husband off in that family and with that wife, he can sift her like wheat too and those kids like wheat. So we need to be praying in the peace times because the times of sifting are indeed coming. Our battles against temptation are won on our knees before we ever get there to that moment. We do need to pray in the moment, but if that's the first time we've been praying, it's late. And I'm not saying God won't deliver us from evil in that last minute prayer, but we are instructed to pray before the sifting because the Spirit is willing but our flesh is fallen and weak. So, <clears throat> after all of this, his failure to pray and his fear of man, we see there in verse 72 <clears throat> that Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Can you imagine the shockwaves of grief that hit Peter after that second rooster crow. Maybe you have experienced it. I have sinned in my life and been so cut in the discovery of that sin that I somewhat identify with Peter here. You know what it's like to be grieved? Luke gives us more cutting details. Luke twenty two sixty. listen to this. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then listen to this. Wow, listen to this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Wow. Put yourself in those shoes for a moment. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I think so. I think so. I'm glad he did. It's a sign of the beginnings of repentance. He's got godly grief. He doesn't have worldly grief here. He's got godly grief that leads to repentance, that brings about salvation without regret. He's got that. It's beginning. He's weeping bitterly. Can you imagine if Scripture stopped right here in the life of Peter and this is all we heard for the rest of the way? <laughs> what a downer, man. We wouldn't want to go read Peter's biography, would we? It could have ended like Judas Iscariot's because Judas, after he realized what had done, he went and heaped sin on top of sin and killed himself. 
We don't read about Judas very often. No one names their babies Judas. There's a bunch of Peters in the world. Why? Because the story turns. No one names their child after someone that wasn't redeemed. Peter was not redeemed. He was called the son of destruction. Jesus said, I kept all of those that you gave me except for one so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So no one names their son after the son of destruction. But many name their sons after the one who was redeemed, Peter. We have not heard the last of Peter. (laughs) We have, by the way, in Mark. He's not mentioned anymore. We have to leave the gospel of Mark and go to Luke. And John, to see how this thing ends. And so here's my fourth point this morning. We need to look at the restoration of Peter. If I left us right here and we went out and headed off to lunch, we'd be down, wouldn't we? Man, that was a beating this morning to hear all of that. But I'm going to lift you up with the scriptures here this morning because the news gets real good. And I want you to see your biography in this as well because this is not removed from your experience. We must pay very close attention to the restoration of Peter. There are some details here that we need to see and embrace. And because of that, we need to worship God. I want you to remember, first of all, Peter did not choose Christ, but Christ chose Peter. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come on, Peter. My name's Jesus. You're with me now. Your name's Simon. Well, I want it to be Peter. You're one of my guys. Come on. Peter didn't do that on his own. Jesus went and found him. Likewise, because of that, the restoration begins not with Peter, but it is initiated by Christ. (laughs) It takes Jesus to save us, and it takes Jesus to restore us when we fall. If we're left to ourselves, we won't do it. We will be Judas. And so we need to look into this restoration. Go to Luke chapter 22 again. I hope you kept your place there. The restoration is initiated by Jesus Christ. And it actually begins before Peter's fall. It begins before he ever falls. It begins during the warning that Jesus gave. Look at this. Simon, Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But look at this. (laughs) I love this passage of Scripture. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Wow! That is a huge piece of Scripture. The restoration of Peter begins when Jesus foretells his falling. Jesus says, I have prayed for you. Now, let's chop up a few things here. We need to look at some details here real quick. First of all, in verse 31, Simon has demanded, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That you in the original text is plural. Plural, it's not singular. So there is a plural you that Satan has demanded to sift like wheat. Well, who might that you be? That you is the 11 disciples. Satan has demanded that you disciples may be sifted like wheat. That he could have you. And so we've seen this kind of demand from Satan before. 
Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, Satan demanded of God that he could have Job and sift him like wheat. We might just very well look at that passage tonight in the chapel. We've seen evidence of Satan operating like this before. And the glorious news is that Satan is on a leash. God does not let him go beyond where God would allow him to go. And so we see that Satan has demanded that he sift the disciples like wheat. Let's just talk about sifting for a bit. A, a kernel of wheat, there's a, there's a kernel inside of a hole. And you sift wheat to separate the kernel from the whole. Well, the, the kernel is the heart, the soul, and the shell around it is the faith. And when you sift wheat, it's a violent process of shaking and rattling and crushing to separate that faith from that heart so that the heart drops through the screen and the faith, the whole, stays above. And then Satan has that heart that dropped through and the faith is removed. Well, I want you to know that at the moment of sifting, at the moment when the, the hole is separated from the kernel, that's sin. And we've been there. So we can all say that we've been sifted like wheat in real simple, subtle ways and very extreme and elaborate ways. We can say, I can think of a time that I was sifted like wheat. I know what it feels like for my faith to be separated from my soul, at least for a moment. And Peter's was for a moment separated. I don't know him for a moment. But there was restoration because Jesus said, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. So, I want to ask you this morning, how does Satan sift you like wheat? I want you to think in your minds for a moment. Yeah, I remember that moment. That was a sifting. You think about your occasions. Some of them are extreme. He tempts us to immorality with many and various lustful enticements. He can sift you like wheat in front of a computer screen, can he? Can he? can sift you like wheat with another person. He can sift you like wheat in public and in private. You've been sifted with your anger, with your covetousness, with your desire to gossip, with your, with your desires and lust and adultery. You've been sifted. I have. We have. We know what this is like. It can be extreme when he threatens our physical or our financial or our reputational prosperity. We can be sifted in our bank accounts, in our flesh, and dare I say our name and our reputation in the community. Oh, he can sift us like wheat. But it can also be subtle. He can entice us in subtle ways. Hey, don't get too involved in that church over there. Oh, don't open that Bible too much. He's sifting us in those moments when we say, that's boring stuff, man. I don't need that. I'm good. They may all fall away, but I won't. I don't need that. I'm good. You're being sifted in that moment so that you can be sifted in bigger moments. He can distract you. He can sift you with distraction. Don't pray. You need to sleep. That's what he said to Peter. 
You need to sleep. You don't need to pray. It's been a long day. You got a big one tomorrow. You need your rest, your flesh. So sleep. You're being sifted. Truth be told, he ought to say, you're tired from me sifting you all day, so don't pray. Go to sleep. You need rest because I need to sift you tomorrow and I need you weak. So he is demanded to have them that he might sift them. I want you to look at verse 32. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The you in this sentence is singular. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Now it fell. But it didn't fail. (laughs) It fell for a moment. He contended with fallen flesh. He's desperate for Jesus Christ to die and to rise and to come again and resurrect all those that believe in him. He needs all of that to happen, and we do too. But he did have a momentary falling, and we do know what this is about, don't we? Because as Christians, we still struggle with sin. But we're repenters, right? We don't celebrate our sin. We don't boast in it. We don't boast in it. We don't have locker rooms where we can say whatever we want. That's just locker room talk. No, sir. We repent of it and we pick up a cross. We don't run to a locker room. We pick up a cross and we crucify our sins. So Jesus says the greatest words of hope. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. John 17, 15, Jesus prays this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's what he prayed for Peter. Just a chapter before this in John's version. So Jesus gives the greatest instruction of hope. He says, when you have turned again, I need you to strengthen your brothers. And so we know that Jesus' prayer is successful. Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you've turned again, so you're going to fall, but you're not going to fail. When you've turned again, you're my appointed man to strengthen your brothers, the other ten. And they're going to need it because they abandoned me into the dark of night. And they're going to be distraught because I'm going to be buried after I'm killed on a cross. I'm going to need you to go strengthen them. So though he was sifted, Jesus chooses Peter, not John, not James, Andrew. He chooses Peter to be the one that restores the other ten. And that is amazing that he would take a wretch like Peter. It's amazing grace that he would take a wretch like Peter, one who denied him three times. And say, I need you to be the guy that restores my men. There's hope in that. So does Jesus pray for us like he prayed for Peter? Nod with me. Hebrews gives us a couple of verses on that, but Romans 8, 34 is the best. It says, who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus Christ right now, just like he prayed for Peter, right now is at the right hand of God the Father praying for us. 
That's amazing. This is who Jesus Christ is. He is a praying Savior. And He prays for you that you may not fail. You might fall, but He wants you to be victorious through your sins. And when you have returned to your senses, so to speak, you're to go strengthen others, even though you're falling. So I don't care what sin you have committed. I don't care what sin you've committed. Because denial of Christ, way up there at the top, isn't it? You got adultery. You got embezzlement. Lying. Gossiping. Coveting. We could keep on going all the way down through it. Can't control your anger. I don't care what sin you have committed. There is a sovereign Jesus at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you. And when you are restored from those sins, he wants you to come to me and strengthen me. (laughs) Wow. He wants you to go to you and strengthen y'all. And so we're a church made up of fallen people. We have moments of relational conflict. We have moments of sin in our lives privately and publicly. And we are to be restored because our praying Savior is praying before God the Father on our behalf. And once we're restored, we're not junk. We're not disabled and we can't do anything in the kingdom anymore. We're exactly who Christ would use to go reach a lost world and to go stir up one another within the confines of His church. Wow. That's amazing. So there's no place for us as Christians to be defeated and and self-rejected over our sinfulness. We can still be victorious because Christ is the one who restores. Let's look at that. Let's look at the moment of restoration. I'm going to go real quick here, and then we're going to take the supper. Good grief. Wow. The moment of restoration is powerful and beautiful. It starts with God. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter is in the sights of God. Mark 16, verse 5. I want you to turn one page over. Mark 16, verse 5. There is an angel at the empty tomb, and he is speaking on behalf of God. And this angel says, verse 7, Go tell the disciples and Peter. (laughs) Go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. So Peter is singled out in the instructions to go and tell the good news. Then Peter goes after his Christ. In John 21, 7, the guys are out fishing and Jesus from the bank says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. They pull in 153 fish is what they ended up counting. They can't believe it. And John says to Peter, hey, that guy on the beach over there, that's the Lord. And the scriptures say this, Then Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, and he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. (laughs) He threw himself into the sea. Why? To swim to Jesus Christ on the beach. So God went after him. You go tell Peter. We're going to meet in Galilee. They're fishing in Galilee. They see Jesus, and Peter swims ashore. To Jesus, And when he gets there, Peter and Jesus have this reunion. And Jesus three times says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? 
Peter says, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. And second time, Peter, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Tend to my lambs. And then a third time, Peter, Peter, look here. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And so three times, Peter sleeps in the garden. Three times, Peter denies Jesus. And three times, Jesus says, do you love me? And three times, Jesus says, take care of my sheep. I have big plans for you in my church. So this morning, listen, y'all, it's late. But can we, can we stop life and worship through this supper? It is late in the morning. I know that. But now we're going to take the meal. I'd ask the men to come forward. Here's what I want you to consider as we take this meal. I want you to consider, number one, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's because He chose you. It's not out of any merit that you did. He chose you and He saved you. And if you are one of those... You're coming to this table this morning as one of his to remember that he chose you through death and resurrection. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this meal is not yet for you. We would love for you to take this meal with us at some point, but you must have a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and you must believe in him before you can remember what he did. So I would encourage you to watch us worship Christ this morning. And if you want to talk about what it takes for you to be welcome to this table by the Lord, I'm ready. I'd love to have that conversation with you. If you're a true follower of Christ, it's because you were chosen. And Jesus, as a follower of Christ, Jesus warns you, you need to be praying that you may not succumb to temptation because it's coming your way and there is a devil who's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He would love to sift you like wheat. You need to be praying. Your spirit is willing, yes, but your flesh, it is weak. Maybe you're here this morning as a Christian like me and you have fallen. Even this week you have sinned. Well, there is a call this morning to repent of that sin and to jump off that boat and swim to Jesus Christ. And we do that by repenting here in a moment as we have a time of prayer and preparation for this meal. And then when you've taken that sin before the Lord and you've repented of it, then you need to walk down this aisle and you need to take this bread and you need to take this cup and you need to remember that Jesus died for the sin that you just confessed to him. That's his invitation to you. And so you have that opportunity this morning to come to this table and to acknowledge his substitution for you. Hey, if you're visiting with us, you're not a member of our church. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been baptized into His resurrection and the forgiveness and salvation that comes through Him alone, and you're in good standing with a church that believes in the gospel that we're proclaiming here, our table is open to you, and we want you to take this meal with us because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we're from different local congregations. So now we're going to take just a brief moment and it doesn't have to be long. It needs to be efficient and effective. Let's go before the Lord and repent. And then let's pursue him like Peter did and come to the front. We'll take the bread first, eat it, move to the cup, take that and drink it, and then return to your seats. And when we're done, we'll go off into the afternoon. Father, we thank you for this story of choosing, of warning, of fallenness, and of restoration. And I pray now, Lord, that we would live it out in this final moment of worship this morning when we remember the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. 
on the cross for our sins. Amen.